0: Good morning, if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel passage, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 42. So this passage is the conclusion of Jesus's instructions to his apostles as he's sending them out um, to spread the word. To share with the world the gospel. And what's the gospel? The gospel is this good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. That's the news that's really good. And they're supposed to go out and tell that. They're supposed to go out and say, you know, the stuff of our deepest longings, the stuff of our myths... These are not just fantasy. They are the primal collective human awareness of the way things were meant to be. And now that Jesus is here, we were just talking to him. These apostles are saying God himself has come into person to pull all of that off. To heal this world. To deal with all of the infections in the world. The diseases and the demons and death itself. Look, look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. He tells him, look, proclaim as you go, saying this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the good news. That is the gospel. It's the shortest definition of the gospel I know of. Gospel means good news. What's the news that's so good? It's that finally God has come here to sort this thing out. In Jesus, who's here now, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's near. It's at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, lepers, cast out demons. Why? Because in the kingdom, none of the bad stuff is here. Like, so don't just go telling people the kingdom is here. It's going to go with you. And when you roll into town, the kingdom of God is rolling into town. This is the stuff that Jesus has been doing. And now what he's doing is he's launching the church with the same mission to proclaim the gospel that all of the bad stuff is going to be dealt with all of the infections, all of the sufferings, all of the pain, it's going to get healed. That the God who created the world still loves the world. And he has shown up in person to do something about the brokenness and the pain and the infections that are in the earth and in humans and in everything. And so as the apostles go out, they aren't just talking about this. They're not just saying the kingdom is here. In Jesus, God's answer is here. In Jesus, the solution that God offers is here. They're actually carrying the kingdom within themselves. And people are seeing with their own eyes, as these apostles come into these towns, they're seeing the kingdom. They're seeing forgiveness. They're seeing healing. They're seeing all of goodness breaking in. Now, all through Jesus' instructions... To tell the disciples to go out and do this. That's chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Matthew is Jesus' instructions for how the apostles are to do this. All through this, he brings up some bad news. In the midst of the good news, there is a sad fact that not everyone is gonna like this, and not everybody's gonna receive this message. And not everybody's going to be kind about it. Look at verse 11. He tells the apostles, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So this was the first hint they got that it's not just going to be like championship parade, you know, after the the big football game. There are going to be people who aren't worthy to receive this. Then in verse 14, he tells the apostles, if anyone will not receive you or listen to you, your words shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Oh, so this is a tick up, right? Not only are some people not worthy, some people aren't going to listen. They're, they're going to resist. They're not going to receive it. And then in verse 16, he turns the temperature all the way up. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, right? It's one thing that some people aren't worthy. It's another they're not going to listen. And now suddenly there's going to be wolves So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. I'm going to get arrested and they will flog you. I'm going to get beaten. Do you see how it's like? It's getting more and more intense. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. I mean, this is a whole other level. Later on, he says, people are going to hate you. And then he says, they're going to put you to death. Now, this isn't the typical speech, right? Like right before the mission trip that Martin leads. <laughs> don't worry about the liability release form. <laughs> There's not going to be any of you left, right? <laughs> then in verse 26, Jesus tells his apostles, now after he's done all of that, he says, but don't fear those people. In verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And in verse 29, as Wilson showed us so beautifully last week, there is no suffering we will go through that God will not be with us. We will never fall alone. I know that that's true. And then we arrive at this morning's passage. The conclusion of this speech, right? This, um, go get them team. These instructions to his disciples about how to spread the word, how to share with the world, the good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. And as Jesus is wrapping up his instructions to the apostles before he sends them out to to launch the church, the last thing he does is he points out three obstacles. And we need to pay close attention because here we are 2,000 years later and we face the same three obstacles. We've been in Matthew chapter 10. What we have here is Jesus' instructions to the beginning of the church about how to be the church. And at the end of the instructions, he says to the beginning of the church, and he says to us today, 2,000 years later. Now, as you go out to do this, here are the obstacles you're going to face. Number one, verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The first obstacle is the fear that comes from being in the minority. If we're gonna be a church, we have to overcome the fear of being in the minority, the fear of being different. In particular, the fear that comes from believing that Jesus is God and in him, his kingdom has arrived on earth. Believing that when most of the people around us don't believe it. Go back up to verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. He doesn't mean every single person will hate me but you. He means it will feel like when you look around the room, nobody but you has bought into this. In those moments when it feels like you are the only one who believes that Jesus is God and when you live like the Bible teaches us to live there are people who will hate you for it and the fear of that the fear of being different the fear of being hated can silence us so that we just keep Jesus and the Christian sake we just in the Christian faith we just keep it to ourselves Look, almost 1,000 years ago, Christianity became the most powerful, the most influential, the most popular religion in the Western world. And so for 1,000 years, the Christian view of the world was taught everywhere. It was taught by the government businesses held people accountable to it it was taught by the schools it was in the architecture it was in the arts christian beliefs about morality and sex god and sin and marriage and the afterlife these beliefs were instilled in people just by breathing the air in the west And because this was just the air, nearly everybody adopted it. 500 years ago, it was virtually impossible to be an atheist. There were some, but it was overwhelmingly difficult to not believe in the Christian God. And because this was a view, because nearly everybody held it, even without knowing that there were other options, if someone chose to not be a Christian that was hard. And if someone who was not a Christian showed up in church, what they heard in church didn't sound strange. It sounded like everything they had been seeing and hearing everywhere they moved around the world. And if they, if they chose to push against it, it required enormous courage. But now for the first time in a thousand years in the West, it's the opposite. Christianity is rapidly declining in popularity, especially among young people. In the 1930s, George Gallup invented modern opinion polling. And in 1948, we have the first survey done of religious views in America. And at that time in 1948, around 93% of Americans identified as Christian. 93%. And only 2% of the U.S. population said there was no religion that they identified with. That percent stayed the same from 1948 for 20 years until 1967. And then the percentage of people in America who said they had no religion doubled. It went from 2% to 4%. And then it slowly crept up until 1975 when it reached 7%. And from 1975 for the next 27 years, the number in people in America who disavowed religion stayed the same. It roughly moved around between 6 and 9% from, from the late 60s until the late 90s. And something changed in the late 90s. We're still coming to grips with it, trying to understand it. The most fascinating theory I've found recently that seems true to me is the two big changes in the late 90s were the end of the Cold War. It's no, now, you know, during the Cold War, it wasn't cool to be an atheist because Russians were atheists. And that was a break. That, that just made it unacceptable. The break left, Cold War ended, and the internet was invented. And these two fundamental changes launched a sharp increase in the number of people who left religion, a radical decrease in the number of Christians, and the most recent data indicates that nearly 30% of the American population identifies as no religion. And the percentage of the population that claims to be Christians is down from 93% in 1948 to 63% today. And among young people, the decline is significantly shorter. America is in the midst of a religious revolution or more technically an irreligious revolution. In the data from 2021, 44% of people between 18 years old and 29 years old said they do not identify with any established religion. In fact, young people today say they have no religion at triple the pace of the young people in any other decade in our history. And so we are now in a situation, especially young people, that is closer to what the apostles were facing than what my father faced or my grandfather faced for the first time in 1,000 years here in the West, Christianity is a despised minority group. And so like with the apostles, there is enormous pressure for the first time in a thousand years to be silent, to keep our mouths shut about Jesus to just blend in, to change Jesus into some amorphous spirituality that doesn't offend and doesn't challenge, to only talk about his love or his kindness, but not about sin and morality and sexual ethics and marriage and heaven and hell. So that is the first obstacle Jesus points out to his apostles and now to us today, the fear of being different, the fear of being picked on and persecuted and hated. And the way that tempts us into silence about Jesus, the way it tempts us to just go along to get along. The second obstacle that Jesus points out is harder even than that. It's the fear of our families rejecting us. Notice verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Was not true for my dad. It was not true for my grandfather. It is true for me. We're back there. We're where this thing started. Verse 21, Jesus said, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Holy cow. This is the speech before the mission trip. Jesus is telling us that even our most intimate relationships will be disrupted. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I read verse 7 where Jesus told the apostles that they would have power over sickness and demons and even death, but not their children's faith and not their brother and sister's faith. They will have power over demons and death, but they will not have the power to escape persecution. They will not have the power to escape opposition. Persecution is inherent in mission. It's unavoidable and not just persecution in general, but persecution from family. Now look, back in the day, back in the first century, when Jesus was telling this to his apostles, it was worse than what you're thinking. It was worse than what it means for us. First of all, your family was what gave you an identity. We happen to live in a moment where you get an identity apart from your family. But at this point in time, people were known and thought of as sons of, daughters of. I mean, just go back to the list of the apostles. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, James, the son of Zebedee. And verse 4, James, the son of Alphaeus. How do you know the difference between the two Jameses? What family did they come from? Identity was based on family. That's how you distinguish who you are. Second, families were the main social welfare network. There were not any federal welfare programs. No food stamps. Your family was responsible to support you. Number three, families were the main mechanism for business and personal contacts. Sons benefited from the reputations of their fathers. Families provided the future by providing an inheritance. There was no capitalism empowering a middle class to rise up. So what happens when someone in that kind of setting is estranged from their family? They're not just awkward at family reunions. They lose their identity. James who? They lose contacts they need for business. They lose the safety net that will keep them from excruciating poverty when disaster strikes. They lose their inheritance. If you want to imagine what Jesus' disciples were facing, think about what happens to a Muslim in Iran who converts to Christianity today. And in fact, in verse 37, Jesus says, whoever loves... Father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Remember back in verse 11 when Jesus told the apostles, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy and stay there with them until they are apart. He's not talking about if they're good. He's not talking about if they've done bad things. Being good isn't what makes you worthy of the kingdom of God. Being bad isn't what makes you unworthy of the kingdom of God. What makes you worthy is are you willing to love Jesus more than you love your own child, your own mother, your own father? Jesus is referring to the threats we face when we are going to be a missionary church. These are the obstacles we face. Are we willing to acknowledge him in public? Are we willing To share with others the news that's the best news. That God in the flesh, Jesus, brings the kingdom. And he's talking about the threat. Are we willing to lose our relationship with our family? Jesus is saying that if you are not willing to be laughed at, to be different, to be hated for his sake you're not worthy to be his disciple. If you're not willing to give up your whole familial social network for his sake, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Wow. I mean, if he'd stop there, that's that's enough. But he turns the temperature up as high as it can go in verse 38. No longer talking about being embarrassed. No longer talking about giving up your reputation and giving up your family. In verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's telling us that we must deny our deepest desires, our deepest impulses, if they do not align with his plans. If he has a way and I want a different way, I have to give up and go his way. He's saying loud and clear that what matters is allegiance to him. Allegiance to Jesus must come at the top of every priority list. This is a a lot. I mean, he's either a total jerk or he's God. Because for anybody to ask that, unless they're God, that's a cult leader. That's a manipulator. That is a tyrant. Unless it's God. He's telling us that to be worthy of heaven, we have to be willing to pick him over our reputation, over our family, over our economic position, over even our own desires and our own life. This is what it costs to be a missionary church. Why in the world would we do this? Why would I give up my relationship with my family? Why would I expose myself to economic ruin? Why would I be humiliated? Why would I not do what I want to do? Why would I not be who I feel on the inside I'm supposed to be? I mean, he needs to have something better to offer. He's either a madman or he's really God. And he's really offering everything. And he knows more than us. Look at verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Look, our response to Jesus will determine our destiny. This is life and death stuff. Being a Christian is hard. And the hardness of it, that's the test. It is hard to confess Jesus today. It is hard to acknowledge him when everyone else in the room sees it so differently and when you see it like them. It is hard to acknowledge Jesus when we know that people will laugh at us and pick on us and exclude us and it is harder now than it has been for a thousand years. And the younger you are, the more pressure there is to deconstruct and to walk away from the Christian faith. It is so hard to believe something the whole culture makes unbelievable. So much about Christianity, real Christianity, sounds hateful and ignorant to our ears today because our culture sees it that way. And it's hard to be a Christian when being a Christian means our own family gets busted up and we are rejected by our children and our parents and our siblings, and it's hard to be a Christian when it means you're gonna miss out on that sweet business deal. You're gonna make less money. You're gonna have less friends. You're gonna be more vulnerable to bankruptcy. It is hard to be a Christian when you have desires deep inside you that do not line up with the paths of life that the Bible teaches our, us are God's paths of life. So what about you? Are you willing... To lose everything for Jesus. If you are, listen to verse 39 again. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is nothing you can give up that Jesus will not give back more. You cannot outgive God. The only reason this works is because he's going to give more in return. This is how the kingdom moves forward. This is how the kingdom moves forward in your life. As you surrender everything to Jesus, the kingdom moves forward in your life. And this is how it moves forward in our city. As we acknowledge Jesus, as we own up to him in the face of persecution, as we confess him to others, that is how the kingdom moves forward. Verse 40, whoever receives you when you do these things, receives me. You know, Jesus... Sometimes I wish you hadn't set it up that way. Sometimes I wish that I didn't feel like your kingdom in my city depended on me acknowledging you. Why can't you just take care of this, right? But he gets to the end and the last thing he says before the mission trip is, you carry the kingdom And whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones... See, at this moment, you suddenly remember in the passage that there's a whole huge crowd. There's there's thousands of people. And Jesus has been in chapter 10 only talking to the twelve. And suddenly he turns to the whole crowd and says, they're little in your eyes. They believe something you don't believe. They have little power. You're going to persecute them and you're going to hurt them. But he's pointing to his apostles. He's pointing to the small group and he's telling the crowd now, whoever gives them even a cup of cold water because he, he, they are disciples, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So look, the next time these words about confess and deny are used in Matthew's gospel is around a charcoal fire at the site of Jesus' crucifixion. And one of the apostles, Peter, he does deny Jesus. And it's good to know that. It's good to know that if you've denied him before and you've been silent You can come back to him. That doesn't have to be the end of your story. Peter did. Peter came home and God forgave him and accepted him. And so rise up. And go out there one more day. And when we do this, when we give Jesus our highest allegiance and when we publicly acknowledge him, we will be a missionary church and the kingdom of God will grow in our lives and it will grow in this city. Let's pray.